Okay, uh, throughout August, we've been, uh, well, we are going to be looking at a handful of chapters from the book of Psalms together. And uh, Jason took us through Psalm 145 last week, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 16. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. All the words are going to come up on the screen behind me. And I'm really excited about what we're going to learn together today. It's a fantastic psalm. Uh, But before I read the passage, let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for this chance to gather together this Sunday morning. Thank you for the opportunity to enjoy you. Thank you for the opportunity to enjoy each other's company. And Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that it shows that you're not a distant God far off, but in Christ you have come close to us. And so today we ask that you'd reveal more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Psalm 16. David's writing and he starts, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I have an admission to make, first of all, and that is that I love roller coaster rides. I remember a time a few years ago, I'd gone to Thorpe Park, and it was at the height of the summer uh, holidays for schools, and the park was absolutely teeming with people. It was a Saturday, and it was a very sunny day. And I think I arrived in the park around 10 o'clock in the morning and left at about 6 o'clock, so eight hours in the park. And during that time, uh, I think I went on three rides altogether. It was a test of both my patience and commitment to going on roller coasters. But I actually had a really good day. Um, I love I love roller coasters. Despite the queuing, I still was able to enjoy myself. Why was I happy to line up for hours and end for a roller coaster ride? Because I knew I would experience pleasure, if only for about 30 seconds per ride. But I love that burst of adrenaline you feel when the ride first takes off and you go on a loop-the-loop and uh, the corkscrews. I absolutely love the corkscrews. (laughs) Not everybody finds pleasure uh, in going on roller coaster rides or being suspended upside down like I do, but... That's why people like me go to theme parks. We go for pleasure. And people happily go to great lengths in order to experience pleasure. That's why I was happy to queue for such a long time in order to enjoy it. Now, as I said, people do lots of different things in order to enjoy pleasure. And I've been enjoying another of my pleasures this week, which has been watching the Olympic Games in Rio. Maybe you have as well. Uh, And I wonder if you've ever thought about what motivates Olympic athletes to do what they do. Some of them go through years and years of hardcore training in order to compete. 
I was listening to uh, this man give an interview. Uh, it was actually a few years ago, the interview I, I was listening to. But uh, this is Thorpedo, uh, Ian Thorpe. Any Australians out there, you're very proud, I'm sure. Uh, the most decorated Olympian in Australia. He's won five gold medals. And when he was asked why he would endure such pain day after day in the swimming pool in order to win an Olympic medal, he said this, I got enjoyment out of putting my body through exhausting training. I found satisfaction in pouring all of my energy into something and pushing myself so hard that I knew I had depleted everything my body could do. Pleasure has a sustaining power. Everybody actually knows that on some level and everybody searches for pleasure in some form. Some pleasures last only for a moment, like the roller coaster ride that's only 30 seconds, or some for much longer, training for and winning the gold medal. So I wonder what it is that brings you greatest joy and pleasure. Maybe it's the simple things, a quality meal out with friends, an afternoon on the golf course, traveling, exploring a new part of the world, or perhaps it's your children, seeing your child learn something new or compete in sports day, or perhaps it's something completely different entirely. Well, the search for pleasure is such an important thing, and it's got a lot to do with the passage that we just read, Psalm 16. Now, this psalm is one of David's songs, again, and it speaks of his search for pleasure and the place that he ultimately finds it. So I've called today's sermon, The Pursuit of Pleasure. And if you're taking notes, I'll split it into three short segments. So first of all, why do we seek pleasure? Secondly, we're going to look at where do we look for it? And then lastly, where can we find lasting and ultimate pleasure? So firstly, why do we seek pleasure? Well, we're hardwired for it. To see this, we need to turn right back to the very first page of the Bible to see that we are made in the image of God. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, it'll come up on the screen, it says this, this is God speaking at first, let us, meet, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Other living things don't seem to have the same desire and hunger for pleasure that human beings have. Men and women are created in the image of God, so we reflect something of what God is like in the way we go about our business. Now, we're not a perfect image anymore. If you flick over two chapters in Genesis, there's the fall of man, which talks of how we're a marred image now, but still there is something that remains of God's image in human beings. And I just want to look again at those verses uh, in verse 26 and 27. The language is plural. And that's really important. God doesn't say, let me make man in my image after my likeness. But rather, he says, let, me make, let us make man in our image. And that's important because the God of the Bible is not just one person. He's three persons. Now, it can be a complex thing to get your head around. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. I've tried to illustrate it in this simple diagram. Um, but there is only one God, but he exists in three persons. And he is a joyful community. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist in harmony, unity, and with perfect joy at the very heart of who he is. Now, the Father takes pleasure in the Son. We see this in the New Testament. Um, when Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, uh, a voice comes from heaven. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and he says, This is my beloved Son, the Father speaking over Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father takes pleasure in the Son. And the Son has joy in the Spirit. Joy is listed as one of the elements that make up the, the fruit of the Spirit, also in the New Testament. And mutual self-giving love and joy are at the very heart of who God is. And so we, as Genesis proclaims, 
being made in his image, are also made to be joyful beings who enjoy pleasure. It's innate. The search for pleasure, it comes from God. It's a good thing that is inside of us. Uh, A guy called Mike Reeves, who is a a theologian based in Wales, he wrote an excellent book about the Trinity. Uh, It's called The Good God. And in it, he writes this. In the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. God is the joy behind all joy. We have in us this desire to pursue that which pleases us, Because a God who himself is joy and pleasure uh, has always enjoyed those things for eternity. He's placed it in our hearts. He's both the source of our desire for pleasure, and he's also the answer to that same desire. Now, if we rewind back about 1,500 years now to one of the early church fathers, Augustine, uh, who put it this way. I love this quote. uh, Our loves are not rightly ordered, Augustine wrote. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So we are hardwired to look for pleasure, and we're restless in our search for it until we find a fulfillment. That's what Augustine says. It's only found in God. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, and you'll feel like life hasn't been that pleasurable or fulfilling of late, or you're going through a difficult time personally, and those circumstances have robbed you of experiencing joy. You feel like you need to find joy again. Well, Psalm 16 is going to be massively helpful for you. Or perhaps you're at the other end of the spectrum. You're on top of the world today. It's like winning a gold medal every day of your life. Well, Psalm 16 will be helpful to you as well. How do you experience a joy that lasts for longer than a month, a season, or a year? David in Psalm 16 is going to help us. So let's dig into the psalm now to see what he says. I'm going to start with the very last verse of the psalm. This is a really key uh, verse. David is writing and he's addressing God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the joy that is spoken of here in the psalm is ultimate joy, fullness of joy. And what could be fuller than full? And the next line is about the length of the pleasures. How long does David say they last for? They last forevermore. And what could be longer than forever? Fullness and forever. This is a better joy than a temporary roller coaster ride, which lasts only for a moment, that thrill, that buzz. It's a deep joy that lasts for our whole lives, David says, and for the life to come. And this is what David tells us is on offer with God. So why do we seek pleasure and joy? Well, it's because we're created in the image of a joyful God who takes pleasure in all that he has made. Secondly, let's look at why, sorry, where we seek for pleasure. So as we've established, we all look for it in one form or another. But often we search in different places. The culture that we find ourselves in is incredibly effective at locating and targeting our desire for pleasure. Now, we live in a Western culture, and advertising is a massive part of our culture. It's all around us. It's on our high streets, it's in football stadiums, it's in the magazines we read, it's in the films we watch. I've always wanted a Rolex watch after watching the James Bond films. And every week I get a whole stack of leaflets come through the letterbox telling me to buy something new. And three months ago, I gave in to one such product. I started buying really good quality coffee. This is the stuff. I've enjoyed coffee actually for quite a long time and uh, I was always content with supermarket quality coffee until I started coming to this church. Um, 
But this leaflet came through my letterbox, and it promised me that I could enjoy much better coffee. I wasn't really living a pleasured life unless I had this coffee. And so I decided to try it. And I have to say, I wasn't disappointed. The new coffee is excellent. And I was very happy with my decision to upgrade. But a few months on, this has become normal for me. And this is a problem. I want to try new coffees all the time. And the supermarket coffee, it just doesn't fulfill me. So the pleasure I experienced at first has started to lessen. Now, advertising sells us happiness. Imagine the joy you'll experience if you have dot, dot, dot. If you have the newest iPhone. If you have a bigger house. If you have better furniture. If you lived in that neighborhood. If you had more friendships. If you had a a spouse. If you had an early retirement. Or if you could give in to wanderlust and take a trip around the world. I find verses uh, 3 and 4 of Psalm 16 especially interesting. David looks out, he's casting his eye over the whole of Israel, and he sees two different kinds of people. The first are the saints in the land, in verse 3. And then there's those who run after another god. That's verse 4. I particularly want to look at verse 4, because David is making a deliberate contrast here between those who find ultimate joy in God, and verse 3, whom David takes delight in, the Israelites who have started to look elsewhere for fulfillment. So what does verse 4 tell us? Well, if you want to, if you want to know what, where you look for ultimate pleasure, look at your resources. Look at your, where you spend your money and your time and what you talk about, what you sing about. The Israelites who are running after another god here in verse 4, they were probably constructing some kind of physical statue, maybe similar to the golden calf, if you know the story in the book of Exodus, when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments uh, from, the, uh, from Mount Sinai, the people lose patience and perspective at the bottom of the mountain, and they start constructing a golden calf made of their jewellery, and they end up bowing down to the calf, uh, dancing around it, singing to it. They gave of their resources, their gold, and they started talking and singing about it. So here in David's time, we have people who are making offerings to another god. A drink offering is spoken of. Well, what's that? That was a combination of animal blood and red wine, which were two costly items for an Israelite living in those times. And also David resolves not to take the name of their God, this is the other God, on his lips. That suggests the Israelites have been talking about or perhaps singing about this other God. Now, Jesus in the New Testament says these words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What our mouth says and where our resources go, they show us what we value, what we treasure, and where we look for pleasure. That was true in David's day. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's still true today. Now, David's response to those who run after another god is clear. He doesn't just say, good for them. You've got what what works for you in this life. I've got what works for me, or any words to that effect. He says, their sorrows will multiply as a result. Now, maybe not at first, but eventually, looking for ultimate pleasure somewhere other than God does lead to sorrow. And he vows to God that he will not follow follow in their footsteps. I will not pour out their drink offerings, nor take their names on my lips. Very deliberate from David. Now, I've been a Christian for about 13 years, about half of my life, And I have to say, the least pleasurable times in my life is when I've tried to live a double life. I've tried to live with one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world's camp. Leaning on God seemed useful to me when I needed him. But most of the time, 
I didn't live as a Christian. I was looking for approval from others. Most of all, I was wanting a comfortable life in pursuit of pleasure. I love sport. It's still true. I still love sport. But I loved sport in such a way that it was my ultimate pleasure. Now, different pleasures in the world appeal to different people. You might not care two hoots about sport at all. Uh, I've got a quote from the American actor Jim Carrey who said this. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. It doesn't matter what appeals to us most in this world for pleasure, whether it's being rich or famous or something else entirely. It's not going to give us ultimate pleasure, the ultimate pleasure we were made to crave. The author, uh, C.S. Lewis, who's a bit of a legend, wrote the Narnia Chronicles. He makes an interesting observation on this topic as well. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So far, we've seen that pleasure is something that we seek because a joyful God created us in his image. And that we seek for different things which bring us pleasure. That's normal. But none can deliver ultimately fulfilling pleasure. So lastly, we're going to look, about, look at where we can actually find it. Now this is where we get to the meat of Psalm chapter 16. This is a psalm full of confidence. It's a declaration. David is boasting of what he's found in Yahweh, his God. And I think there are four ways that I've seen anyway from, from Psalm 16 that we are taught leads to finding ultimate joy in God. Now, the first one is recognizing that he is a refuge who welcomes you in times of trouble. Did you notice that this psalm starts with a plea? David's crying for help. Preserve me, O God. The psalms are a constant reminder that we can come to God in times of trouble, that we don't have to come with polished, well-rehearsed prayers or with a pretense that everything is all right if it really isn't. We can come to God through Jesus exactly as we are today. In the circumstances we find ourselves, we should come honestly before him. David comes to, comes to God in such a time of trouble when he cries for help. Why does David come to God now? Well, verse 1 again, because God is a refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Well, what's a refuge? It's somewhere you can find peace amidst chaos. A refuge is somewhere you can find shelter. And that is what God is to David. Now, the background to this psalm is quite important as well. So David is clearly in trouble in some way or another. We learned last week from Jason that he started out life as a shepherd boy, an ordinary guy. But he had an extraordinary calling. You can read about it in 1 Samuel. Um, Through the prophet Samuel, God had marked, quite literally anointed David to be the next king of Israel. But he had to be patient And the commentators, the Bible commentators, reckon that this psalm was written while David was on the run from King Saul. Saul was the king at the time, and uh, David David had been uh, very, very popular amongst the people. He'd killed Goliath, you may know the story. Uh, And he was just a clearly gifted guy, and as I say, incredibly popular. And Saul's response was to try and kill him. He chased him all over and again and again tried to kill David. So at this point, when David writes Psalm 16... He is likely in a cave on the run for his life. Now, David's circumstances were troubling. And yet this psalm predominantly speaks of the joy that he has in God. And that's why the pleasures of God are so wonderful. They're not dependent on our circumstances. They're not dependent on our mood on any given day. David could have despaired and thought about how far he was from achieving uh, the 
thing that God had called him to do, to be king. He was nowhere near. He was in a cave on the run for his life. Now, most of us are probably not running for our lives at the moment, but we all go through times of trouble. Maybe that's where you're at today. And this isn't a call, Psalm 16. It's not a call to wear a fake smile or to be happy clappy or to turn your frown upside down. You just can't do that. Joy won't return to you if you will it to. And no matter what the self-help books might say. Now, your best course of action is to follow David's lead here in Psalm 16 and turn to God firstly as a refuge. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Another psalm says that. So ask him to preserve you if that's where you're at today. So that's the first way you can experience joy in God from Psalm 16, is to recognize he welcomes you into his presence when life is at its most difficult. He's not a fair-weather friend. The second way to experience joy in God is to count your blessings or recognize all that you already have. So this doesn't mean ignoring your difficult circumstances, but rather reminding yourself of what you already have in God. David says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Remember the blessings you have, physical blessings, such as a place to live, food to eat, friendships and family that you can enjoy. And remember spiritual blessings. If you're, in, if you're in Christ, you are completely forgiven. You're adopted into God's family. You have access unlimited to his presence. And you have a purpose and a future. In verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 16, David says to God, You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, casting lots was like an ancient way of determining what God's will was. It's a little bit like rolling the dice. And it was um, in Israel, they used this method to decide who would get which part of the land that Israel had been allocated. David looks at what he has and he says, God, you hold my lot. He emphasizes God's sovereignty. He says, you're in control of both my life and the current circumstances in which I find myself in. Being the, being the king of Israel must have seemed so far away for David, hiding away in a cave, but he still recognizes God's hand over the whole situation. So firstly, go to God in times of trouble if you want to experience ultimately fulfilling joy. Secondly, look at what God has already given you. And thirdly, turn to his counsel. There's four points in total. Um, you can see this in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So how do you turn to God's counsel? Well, I think it means a few things. Firstly, spending time in his word, the Bible. Read it. Meditate on it. Obey it. Last week, Jason was really helpfully encouraging us to meditate on the Bible. And that's not clearing our minds of stuff, but filling them with truth. That's what turning to his counsel, I think, means. David says, I have set the Lord at my right hand. What does that mean? Well, the right hand was considered the position of authority and, and the place of strength. The majority of people uh, in the world now, and actually in the past as well, have been right-handed. They don't want to offend any left-handed people. But it is the stronger hand for most people. And so David is saying, God is in the place of strength. He's in the place of authority in his life. And he says, it's always the case. Now, you might have heard somebody use the phrase, he's my right-hand man. And it's usually about somebody in authority. Like a football manager, his right-hand man is usually the assistant manager. 
Now, David has set the Lord before him in the, possession, in the position of strength and authority in his life. And my own life changed completely when I got to university. I called myself a Christian uh, before I got there. I think I was, but I wasn't a joyful one. My pleasure was primarily found, as I said earlier, in playing and watching sports. And the God thing was kind of like a nice bit on the side. But then I started reading my Bible, and it changed me. I started to learn about God, and I used to leave Bible studies with a beaming smile on my face because I got to know God, and it is amazing. I can testify to it. I don't know him as well as I'd like to, but it is amazing. Now, turning to God's counsel means reading and meditating on Scripture, and it is a path to joy. I think it also means that we turn to him in prayer, and we wait for answers at times. Sometimes that'll be, uh, we'll have to be patient. And we might be left in confusion. And it means listening to wise and godly people who are around you. I wonder who you ask when you are making a difficult decision. Or who do you go to when you're having a difficult time? I've been incredibly blessed in this church. I've been here for about five years now. And there's people in this room who have given me the best advice possible. Great counsel in times of trouble, in times of confusion. The people of God are there. We are a family, and we've got a great chance to turn to the counsel of God in that way. So read the Bible, pray, and turn to godly counsel. That's what we've got so far. Three points of experiencing ultimate joy in God from Psalm 16. Turn to him as a refuge in times of trouble. Open your eyes to the blessings that he has given you already. Thirdly, turn to his counsel. And fourth and finally, enjoy resurrection hope. Verses 7 and 8 are followed by an explosion of praise. Verses 9 and 10, look at how quickly David has moved from serious concern. Verse 1, preserve me, help me, O God, he said, to all-out praise. That's quite a transformation. Hiding in a cave and on the run for his life in verse 1, and now he shouts, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol in Hebrew means the place of burial or in other words the grave or it could also be translated as hell. David says he's completely confident of the fact that he won't face death. Verses 9 and 10 they link my flesh also dwells secure and then for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And interestingly, these verses are quoted in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 as a prophecy to do with the resurrection of Jesus, hundreds of years later than when David lived. But there's somehow, miraculously, David knew that there would be a possibility that he could escape death and enjoy everlasting life. How much did David know of God's salvation plan? Well, we don't actually know, but what we do know today is that God's promise was good to David. And though he was hiding in a cave uh, for his life, he would later go on to become the king. And after David became king, hundreds of years later, descendants upon descendants, one would emerge that had a greater throne. Not the throne that was of Israel, but the throne of God, the greater throne. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life. He always found his ultimate pleasure in God. He was never half-hearted. He never lived as I did with one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world's camp. Before Jesus rose from the grave, he did actually go to the place of the dead. He went to Sheol. 
so that we who trust in him never would. But his soul was not abandoned there. This, this psalm is David's song, but it is also Jesus's. You see, although Jesus died on Good Friday, it wasn't a miserable death. He wasn't filled with regret, and he wasn't filled with sorrow. He might have been in excruciating pain on the cross, both physical, nails in his hands and his feet, and spiritual, facing the anger of God on our behalf. But he didn't die with regret. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. They tell us why and how he went to the cross at Calvary. Jesus was motivated by joy. He was pleased to do it. It says this, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it. Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. And where is he now? He's in that position of ultimate authority and strength. He's at the right hand of God. The place that David says are found fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 is David's song. It's also Jesus's song. And the amazing news, which I want us to respond to in a second, is that it can be our song too. And this is an invitation. Psalm 16 is an invitation not to suppress our desire or pleasure, our desire for pleasure or for joy, but to find it in the only place that it will truly satisfy you. So I'm going to invite Daryl up and we're going to sing one song in response when I survey the wondrous cross to finish. It would be good to use this song. It's got some amazing words in it to respond to what we've heard. It's going to talk about boasting in Jesus. Maybe you've been boasting in something else recently, and you can use this as your chance to turn to him. Two possible ways you may want to respond this morning. You might be going through a really tough, difficult time. Your response this morning can simply be verse 1. Cry out to God for help, that he would preserve you, that he would help you, because he is a refuge. And I think there might be some of us who haven't experienced true joy for a really long time, maybe ever. The kind of joy that David speaks of here. There's something preventing you, maybe, from enjoying God in this way. In Psalm 51, David writes a different line, different kind of psalm. He's repenting, and he says, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I've prayed that regularly, and he doesn't disappoint if that's you this morning, then please do get prayer. We don't have a prayer ministry up at the corner, but do pray with somebody you know around you or a life group leader or Becca and I are going to be here at the front. We'd love to chat and we'd love to pray for you. So I'm going to close in prayer and then Dal's going to lead us with when I survey. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have wired us for pleasure and for joy. Thank you for the things we get to enjoy on a daily basis, all the good things that you've put in our lives. And help us, Lord, to say with the psalmist that we have no good apart from you, realizing that all our blessings come from your hand. Lord, we're sorry for the times when we have searched for ultimately fulfilling pleasure from something other than you. And help us not to settle for the temporary joys that are on offer. Thank you that Jesus went to Sheol, the place of the dead, so that we could enter your presence where there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore lord we pray fill us with your spirit and in so doing give us a deep joy that stays with us through all circumstances in this life and into the next we pray in jesus name amen